what does it even mean? Your pursuit of gut health is probably taking you down a rabbit hole of misinformation, useless concoctions, and false promises. So this is where this uncensored podcast comes in. The gastroenterologist and his daughter is the first of its kind, bringing a specialist gastroenterologist and his daughter, yours truly, to help you navigate the world of all things gut health from mouth to bum and everything in between. Join me, Sandra McHale, gut health specialist dietitian and founder of Nutrition A to Z, and my father, Wagdi McHale, specialist gastroenterologist and internist, as we unpack the most talked about topics in gut health, covering both the medical and lifestyle aspects of all things gut, with a ton of comedy and fecal tete-a-tete. Right, let's get into it. Welcome back, friends. And here I am with another mini episode, which really is a follow-up to last week's episode on SIBO. Now, I want to apologize for my hoarse voice because I, I'm going to say snotty voice, but your voice can't really be snotty, can it? I do feel very snotty. I'm trying to recover from this cold that doesn't seem to budge, but we do have deadlines to meet. So here I am and I'll try my best to keep my voice very podcast friendly. Anyway, I highly recommend you have a listen to the previous episode first with last week's guest, Dr. Shepard Vavrika, as we unpack small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or SIBO. Now, we've had a lot to talk about, and I know so many of you listen to this podcast for nutrition education. So today, I will be walking you through what we know about the dietary approaches to managing SIBO, as well as the use of herbal supplements. Firstly, if you've been diagnosed with SIBO, I highly suggest you get a referral to start working with a specialist dietitian if you're not already doing so. And perhaps you might have already come across these dietary strategies that I'm going to mention today, but still you need to keep in mind that these strategies have to be personalized. And this is why we always stress working with your team. So today, what I wanted to go through are three dietary strategies that have been used to manage SIBO. And if you've listened to last week's podcast, you would have heard me talk about some of these dietary strategies, whether it's the low FODMAP approach, whether it's the specific carbohydrate diet. So I'm going to go through these in a bit of detail today because we didn't have enough time to cover all of these last time. So the first approach that I want to mention when it comes to managing SIBO is using the FODMAP process or basically reducing the amount of fermentable sugars in your diet or FODMAPs as we all know them. The low FODMAP approach sparked interest as part of the management of SIBO due to the strong overlap between SIBO and another gut disorder, which you've probably heard of multiple times throughout this podcast, and that is IBS or irritable bowel syndrome. So some researchers had an inkling that a low FODMAP diet may be beneficial for SIBO patients too, since it would potentially starve the problematic overgrowth in the small intestine. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the terms FODMAPs, I am going to quickly quote a section in my book, The Gut Chronicles, that goes through this in great detail. So FODMAPs is a term given to a group of poorly digested, rapidly fermentable carbohydrate food molecules. The term FODMAPs stands for fermentable oligodi in monosaccharides and polyols. Examples of these include things like fructose, which is a sugar found in fruit, 
fructans found in wheat and numerous vegetables such as onion. And we've got lactose, which is found in milk, xylitol, which is an artificial sweetener. If consumed in large amounts, FODMAPs are believed to increase the volume of liquid and gas in the small and large intestine, resulting in abdominal pain, gas, and bloating. Now, generally speaking, and when we're talking in the context of IBS, eliminating FODMAPs is a three-phase process, and the elimination phase is generally followed for about two to six weeks to achieve symptom control. You will then enter the reintroduction phase, and that's phase two. This phase will help you determine your threshold of tolerance and which FODMAPs you should continue to restrict. Phase three of the diet aims to liberalize the diet further while managing good symptom control. So this is a teeny tiny section from the book, you know, shameless marketing. But when it comes to SIBO, we do want to reduce the amount of fermentation happening in the small intestine and deprive these microbes of anything that's highly fermentable. So going on a temporary low FODMAP diet may aid in that. Now, because we're not necessarily dealing with a FODMAP sensitivity like we see in IBS, we may not need to completely eliminate all FODMAPs. So a modified low FODMAP diet is generally used to manage SIBO. And secondly, we may not need to go through that second phase, that's the reintroduction phase or the challenge phase, because we're not really, you know, we, we're trying to achieve symptom control and not trying to identify any FODMAP intolerances or sensitivities. If you do work with your dietitian on a modified low FODMAP approach, just make sure that you try and keep your diet as diverse as possible. So they should help you try and get in as close to 30 plant ingredients per week. So again, the diversity is key here. And I mentioned this numerous times that if you are going on any elimination diet, you need to try to keep your diet as diverse as possible. The other question is, when to start the low FODMAP approach? I would say, look, depending on the severity and the length of experiencing your symptoms, some may advise that you can you know, start the modified elimination before and during the course of your antibiotic treatment to treat SIBO. And other professionals may recommend going on that temporary elimination after you've completed the antibiotic course for about two to three weeks after your antibiotic course, as I just mentioned, um, and, or, you know, until your symptoms have completely resolved. So again, you will need to discuss this with your dietitian. Now, another dietary approach that has made the rounds in the past is the specific carbohydrate diet. It was sold as a cure-all dietary protocol designed for things like managing inflammatory bowel disease or IBD, IBS, but also SIBO. However, there has been no strong evidence to date to support its use, especially due to extremely restrictive nature, as you will see when I talk about the pros and cons of the specific diet. So the main principle of the specific carbohydrate diet is to restrict complex carbohydrates that may feed, the, let's say, the harmful bacteria in your gut while allowing the consumption of easily digestible carbs. So for example, the foods included in this diet are things like certain vegetables like carrots, zucchini, and spinach, some nuts like almonds, poultry, fish, and some lean meats, eggs, natural cheeses as well, and just a small, small handful of fruits like apples and berries. Foods that are excluded in this diet are all grains and grain products, most dairy products, legumes, so these are your beans, lentils, and chickpeas, starchy vegetables, 
processed sugars and sweeteners, processed and canned foods, certain additives and preservatives. So if we had to look at the pros and cons of the specific diet, there's really not much, you know, pros to rave on. And I would say the only pro that would come out of this diet would be potential symptom improvement. So some people report symptom relief and that you know, that can include a reduction in stomach pain, diarrhea. And look, I feel like the cons of this diet are worth noting because they are quite extensive and serve as a justifiable reason for why this diet is not commonly recommended. A, it is restrictive in nature. So your food choices are quite limited, as you can see, and potentially, you know, that can lead to um, you having a very hard time meeting your nutritional needs. There is limited scientific evidence. Now, if we had to look at the evidence, most of it is anecdotal, and that's actually not good enough. And there really is limited scientific research validating the use of the specific diet for various gut conditions. The other con is that it is very difficult to stick to because of its strict limitations. So social and lifestyle factors can definitely contribute to difficulties in compliance. There is a lack of standardization. So this diet lacks a standardized protocol leading to variations in how it's interpreted and applied. And it's actually not universally accepted. So within the medical community, very, very little health professionals can stand behind this diet and recommend it. Now, moving on to the third dietary approach, and that is the elemental diet. Now, the, the elemental diet has been used as an approach to manage SIBO, but this is not an approach that we genuinely recommend again. But still, it is important to note and walk you through the pros and cons in case you ever come across it. So what is it, you may ask? It is a specialized liquid diet designed to provide complete and easily absorbable nutrition while minimizing the consumption of food components that can potentially feed the bacteria in your small intestine. It is sometimes used, I would say, as a short-term intervention in the management of conditions like SIBO. But here are some key points that you need to consider. So the three main key features of the elemental diet is that one, you've got pre-digestive nutrients. So when we're talking about an elemental diet, it is a diet that typically consists of pre-digested or like nutrients that have been broken down into the forms of things like amino acids, simple sugars, and fats that require minimal digestion. The other feature is that it is in liquid form. So that allows for easy consumption and absorption. The third feature is that it has minimal residue. So the elemental diet is designed to minimize the amount of bulk or residue within the digestive tract, reducing the availability of substrates for bacterial overgrowth. Now, keep in mind that this elemental diet is only temporary in nature. And the typical, I would say, intervention period is about two to three weeks. Again, the pros, I would say, can be, let's say... Again, those that have promoted the elemental diet would advocate that A, it starves bacterial overgrowth. So by providing easily absorbable nutrients and minimizing substances that you know the bacteria thrive on, the elemental diet aims to reduce bacterial overgrowth in the small intestine. And then the other pro is that people who have undergone the specific diet have reported significant symptom improvement. The cons, however, 
again, are quite extensive. So there are definitely challenges in adherence. It is difficult to adhere to because it's in liquid form and there's really a reduction in diversity and variety, which can lead to something called taste fatigue. The elemental diet is you know, nutritionally complete, but it may lack, again, the diversity of nutrients found in whole foods, potentially leading to nutrient gaps. There's a massive, massive need for professional guidance. You should definitely never undergo a liquid diet or this elemental diet without the guidance of a qualified dietitian or a gastroenterologist, just to make sure you know, you're using it properly, also looking at how much you should be consuming and then monitoring it. The expense as well, there's, a, there's an expense that comes with it. So the commercially available formulas can be quite expensive and then the insurance coverage may vary from place to place. And due to its restrictive nature, the elemental diet is not a sustainable long-term solution. So that kind of wraps up the three most common dietary approaches when it comes to managing SIBO. And that actually, you know, brings me to this whole topic of herbals. You might have heard us talk briefly about things like oregano oil or berberine in the previous episode, but we didn't have much time to elaborate. So I wanted to maybe shed some light on the use of herbals when it comes to managing SIBO. The first question is, when do we use herbals? There are some situations where Herbal therapy may be considered for SIBO, but I highly advise you to discuss this with your gastroenterologist and the specialist dietitian because they would be able to assess whether A, it is suitable, and B, which herbal should you be using. So what are these scenarios that may warrant using herbals? The obvious scenarios, if there's a preference for natural approaches. And actually, some gastroenterologists would prefer trying out a herbal first before considering antibiotics like Faxamine. The other scenario is if a patient is unresponsive to antibiotics. So if they haven't responded adequately to the antibiotic treatment or have experienced recurrent SIBO episodes, herbal therapy may be considered as an alternative approach. Another scenario is chronic or recurrent SIBO. So basically this is, I mean, there as we, as we mentioned in the last episode, recurrence is an issue and to really eradicate or let's say completely manage SIBO or resolve it, let's say, can take up to two years. So in the cases of chronic or recurrent SIBO where symptoms persist despite conventional treatments, some healthcare professionals may explore herbal therapy as part of the, let's say, the individualized treatment plan. And the final scenario where herbals uh, may be warranted could be in the realm of preventative maintenance. So some patients may consider herbal therapy as part of their maintenance plan to help prevent the recurrence of SIBO after successful initial treatment. The three main herbals commonly used in managing SIBO are oregano oil, berberine, and allicin. And I hope I'm saying these right, because this is how I've been saying them all these years. Anyway, but it's crucial to consult with your healthcare professionals for personalized advice on dosage and duration. So starting off with oregano oil, this tends to be one of the most commonly used herbals in the management of SIBO. And the active compounds in oregano oil are things called Carvacrol and thymol, and these are the primary active compounds 
known for the antimicrobial properties. Now, the treatment protocol, the dosage generally ranges from 100 to 200 milligrams of standardized organo oil taken two to three times per day. But actually, again, in certain instances, and this is obviously liaising with gastroenterologists, we can go up to 500 milligrams three times per day. In terms of the duration, and this is something that you'll notice with all the other herbals, is that the duration can go anywhere between a minimum of four to six weeks, and sometimes we do extend it to eight weeks. So again, this also highlights the importance of really consulting your healthcare team to figure out the right dosage and the right duration for you. When it comes to berberin, so it is a compound extracted from a number of plants, including something called golden seal, barberry, and organate grape. The dosage commonly ranges between 500 to 1,100 milligrams per day, divided into two or three doses. And again, the duration can really range between six to eight weeks. And then finally, the allicin, which is the garlic extract. Allicin is a key compound known in garlic for its antimicrobial properties. And I just wanted to kind of just put a little word of warning is quite a few of my clients and other patients have noticed an exacerbation of their symptoms because of this garlic extract. So just keeping in mind that sometimes it may not be tolerated. Again, even if it is herbals, you can still have side effects. So the dosage there varies, but supplements typically provide around 600 to 1200 milligrams of allicin. Now, with the, you know, with these three different types of herbals or any other herbal, so for example, you can also consider neem as part of the management protocol, but you need to understand that herbal supplements are generally used as part of a broader treatment plan for SIBO. So it will be, it's not the sole treatment plan. There will be dietary modifications, just like I mentioned earlier, that you will need to include as, again, potentially the use of prokinetics, which we have mentioned in the previous episode to address any gut motility issues. Professional guidance is crucial here. So you will need to work with your gastroenterologist and a gut specialist dietitian who has experience with SIBO patients to really decide the most appropriate herbal protocol based on your individual symptoms, severity, and your medical history. And obviously something that you need to be very, very mindful of is monitoring and adjustments are needed. So you will need to check in with your dietitian or check in with a gastroenterologist to assess your response and also to review any potential side effects. So this is where I would always highlight personalization, very important, and also self-prescribing or using herbal supplements with that professional guidance is not advisable. With that, I'm wrapping up today's mini episode and I hope you join us next week where Dad and I are back on the pod together talking about another requested topic and that is IBD or inflammatory bowel disease. We are going to start off with Crohn's disease so make sure you tune in next week. Keep well everyone and I really hope my voice sorts itself out by then. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Gastroenterologist and His Daughter podcast. Don't forget to join us again. And if you've been enjoying our chats, make sure you subscribe, follow, or leave a review on your chosen platform.